All right, good morning everyone. Come on in, make yourself comfortable. I know we're outside of our usual abode. We have lots of front row seats. <laughs> Going very inexpensively, as, as they do. We've always, we've threatened when we get to remodeling the sanctuary that only the front half of the pews are going to be padded. <laughs> Push everybody forward a little. Maybe we'll do that uh, strategically. I see some puffy chairs out there. Strategically, we'll set those in the front next week. Well, thank you all for coming. We are going to be jumping back into our study of Proverbs at really a climactic part of the book. Chapters 8 and 9 are a conclusion of this first section, which in many respects has been the introduction to wisdom, and of course, we're seeing Christ as wisdom, we're seeing Christ at the center. And the introduction to the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness, these two different paths, and then ultimately these two different women, as wisdom is personified as a woman and foolishness personified as a woman. And then this caps off with chapters 8 and 9 being the last of the three, so the second and the third, of the poems specifically about wisdom, after which as we get into chapter 10, we start getting into what you might think of more classically as the Proverbs, the sort of wisdom sayings where it's sometimes hard to see why there's a connection between one and another. So let's begin with an invocation and prayer, and then we'll jump into chapter 8. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so by way of just regaining the context, chapter 7 was the tenth and final address to a son. And it's got this amazing scene painted of the foolish and adulterous woman enticing in the sun like a spider trying to entice the fly into the web. And in this case, then, uh, the, the fool, the sun, is caught in this web. And, of course, you've got these different analogies. If you look at chapter 7, verse uh, 22, so... At once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And It's this connection between adultery and idolatry. And I can clarify that once again if anybody needs it, but that has been thorough going throughout the study. So then... Um, 24, verse 24, And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. 
All right, so things are not as they appear, because for all of her seduction and all of her apparent beauty, she ends up leading to her house, leading into hell itself. And that's where we wrapped up. So now we're going to have a powerful contrast between that woman and the woman that is wisdom. Chapter 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. Okay, this has its parallel in chapter 7, verses 10 and following, where we saw the ubiquity of the seductress, of the evil woman, how she is loud and wayward. She won't stay at home. She's in the street, in the market, at every corner. And here then, wisdom is calling, wisdom is raising her voice, not in loud clamor, but in clarion call. And she is on the heights beside the way, the crossroads, the gates. She's ubiquitous too. So again, we can see that just as in Genesis, in the garden, there's the word of God and the word of the serpent, there's just two voices that Adam and Eve hear. So also, even now in our fallen state, there are but two voices. The voice of wisdom and the voice of the seductress. Okay, what does she cry aloud? At verse 4, we start to hear her message. To you, Ishim, men, O men, I call, and my cry is to the sons of Adam. So I know the ESV renders that the children of man. I don't know why. It's quite literally the sons of Adam. You remember um, that Adam is called the Ish, and um, when Eve is taken from her, she's the Ishah. So... Um, that's where that language is coming from. And then, obviously, the children of man, the sons of Adam. So, to you, O men, or Ishim, I call, and my cry is to the children of man, or the sons of Adam. O simple ones, learn prudence. And there is maybe the, the first noteworthy element in terms of her message that she first strikes us with a blow to our egos. If you won't acknowledge yourself to be a simple one, and even worse, what comes next, oh, fools, learn sense. If you won't acknowledge yourself to be simple and a fool, then you won't be in a position to receive the wisdom of God. So that's this idea that one must humble himself or herself. One must fear the Lord, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's kind of the working thesis of really all of Proverbs, but especially this first section. So 
you, we have to be willing to take the rebuke of wisdom before we can learn wisdom. Is that comfortable for our egos? No, definitely not. We all think we're born wise and will always be wise. But in fact, as the scriptures say, no, we're born foolish and we must be born entirely again. We must be enlightened by the wisdom of Christ or we remain forever fools. Okay, so there's this rebuke to our egos and to our fallen sinful beings, our reason and senses included. Oh, simple ones learn prudence, arama, which is uh, the same as like shrewdness or um, one's use of uh, wisdom and, and reasoning. And then, oh, fools learn sense, habinu, uh, discernment or understanding. So, the, the, you know, to make a distinction. And obviously to distinguish between good and evil. Okay. Whereas the seductress uses her voice, she does so in service of drawing one into a bodily, sensual, sinful interaction. So her voice is just sort of a means to that end. The voice of wisdom is in itself the telos, is in itself that which is to be heard and received. So, verse 6, Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Alright, so here is the word that governs, and then, for I will speak, from my lips will come, for my mouth will utter. Those are the parallels. And then what? Things. Noble things. What is right? Truth. Contrasted with the final clause, wickedness is an abomination to my lips. So, wisdom cannot support abomination. Uh, Wisdom cannot support wickedness. Okay? Verse 8, All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. Again, there's no deceit. There's no equivocation. Verse 9, They are all straight to him who understands. And right to those who find knowledge. So as a slight aside, this is one of the ways that we can understand what is called the perspicuity of the scriptures. So by perspicuity, we mean that the scriptures are in and of themselves plain and clear. We don't understand them because we are not capable of it. We are not plain and clear in and of ourselves, and so we can't receive that which is plain and clear. So that's two sides of the coin, why the scriptures we can state are perspicuous, that is, they're they're self-evident, they're clear in their meaning in in all instances, but we, on on account of our fallenness, don't always perceive them as such. So we look at the scriptures and we say there's things we don't understand, or there's things that seem um, not straightforward, not straight, 
But again, that's due to us and our perception, not due to the actual fact. So they are all straight to him who understands. And you probably all who have studied God's word for some time have had that experience where you're like, I don't get it. Or I get it the wrong way, and I think it's the right way, but then suddenly something clicks or some other verses enlighten you, and that which you didn't get, now you get, or that which you got wrong, now you have right. So that is, again, the work of the voice of wisdom, the work of the word in us. And write to those who find knowledge. Okay, verse 10. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Okay, reminiscent of what our Lord says, you cannot serve God and mammon okay so there is a you know you're going if you pursue silver and gold if you pursue all that you may desire you're going to lack wisdom if you value wisdom higher you're going to pursue wisdom and you're going to find that wisdom is greater than silver or gold better than jewels and greater than all your desires because christ is greater than all your earthly desires so that's, that's at root. And I think we can reflect on this a number of ways. I don't want it to be laborious or burdensome. But I think we could simply state that wisdom is self-evidently better than gold and jewels and all our desires because wisdom lasts unto eternity. Wisdom is eternal. Not one jot, not one tittle of my word will pass away, though the heavens and the earth most assuredly will, including all the gold, silver, jewels, and everything else in them. Now, it is worth noting that all you may desire cannot compare with her, and that is all that you may desire, even if you achieve it, you're going to find yourself empty and unsatisfied. And this is a reflection of Solomon, obviously the author of Proverbs, in Ecclesiastes, who literally had anything one could possibly desire at his disposal. And he's the one that says, hey, take it from me, you're still left empty. And you can think of the richest people who exist uh, today in our society, around the world. Are they done being rich? Are they satisfied? Do they just ride off into the sunset? No, they want more and more and more. It's never enough. It's a competition. It's outscoring the other guy. And then it's leveraging that wealth, if you can, to do what? Manifest actual control and power. How can we not reflect on that with the so-called World Economic Forum and their blatant statements that the idea of national sovereignty and national uh, nations competing against nations, that that's all going away, And the wealthy elite of the World Economic Forum and those not present uh, are going to be the new rulers and they're going to do so through money. You can get a politician to do whatever you want as long as you pay them enough. 
So the whole world then is ran through mammon, and our Lord's words ring all the more true, you cannot serve God and mammon. So worthwhile reflecting. Again, I don't intend for this to be too laborious. Let me pause there. Let me see if you um, have any reflections or any thoughts of your own. Maybe I'll try to track down my coffee while you're thinking about it. Good. There we go. Okay. So wisdom will, uh, as you apprehend it and abide in it, it will remain with you your whole life long. Silver, gold, jewels, whatever else you might desire comes and goes. So verse 12, I, wisdom... Dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. So again, prudence is this Arama, this idea of shrewdness or wisdom and reason, and I find knowledge and discretion. Discretion here like purpose or purposefulness, um, the fitness of a given thing over and against another given thing. So I dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of Yahweh, the fear of the Lord, is sanot, hatred of evil. So we're going to have that in our psalm, and you're going to hear that in our sermon, that The love of God is the hatred of evil. Say, well, no, I want to be be loving of God and loving of all things. That's impossible. That's not love. To love God rightly is to hate evil. And here in Proverbs... The fear of the Lord, so you can remember that this is the thesis statement from the beginning, from chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. So wisdom and hatred of evil are synonymous. They're the same thing. So very frequently, what's thrown in our faces as Christians, if you criticize some godless, wicked action, thought pattern, whatever the case may be in our context, you will find someone saying to you, Ha! You're a Christian? Christianity is a religion of love. Not very loving, are you? Or any other derivation. No doubt you've experienced this, or you've seen this, or you've read this. And it can be kind of like, you know, stop you in your tracks for a minute. Well, wait a minute, okay. But the worst thing you can possibly do, rhetorically, is be like, oh, well, you've misunderstood me. Let me show you where we love and don't love. Are they interested in the first place? They're not interested in the first place. Are they interested in Christianity or Christian religion or the view of love? No, they're not at all. Everything they're saying to you is just to make you shut up and go away. So the next time someone says, well, Christianity is a religion of love, what makes you think that? God hates evil. Well, I thought God is love. 
exactly what makes him love, is that he hates evil. If he was a God who loved evil, he wouldn't be love. See, so all the more incumbent upon us as Christians, specifically in this milieu, to really understand love, and that one cannot love unless one also hates. Um, It's a similar paradoxical thing to us when we hear the conclusion of the commandments, and we hear God say, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And we think, jealous? That's a bad thing. How on earth can I understand that? Right? And again, this, is, this really kind of shows us in a backdoor way how we've utterly lost track of what love is. So, take for example, a love for a husband, a love that a husband has for his wife. Should he be happy if his wife goes out on dates with other guys? If he was happy, he would not, in fact, love her as a husband is to love his wife. Which means that an essential part of that love is jealousy. She is my wife. I desire her affection. I do not want her to give her affection to other men. Why? Precisely because I love her as a husband loves his wife. So this happens all the time domestically, too, with children and parents. So what happens when the kiddos always want to cuddle up on dad's lap or always want to cuddle up on mom's lap? What happens to the other? They become jealous. Hey, I want some of that, too. Or how would you feel if your kids said to you, you know, I really wish these other folks were my parents instead of you. I mean, even if they're little, that still kind of cuts. Because love has a jealous component. You are my children, I love you, and I want to be loved by you. Okay, so the same thing applies to God. God says, you are my children. That's what the Father says. The Son says, you are my bride. I am the Lord your God. I don't want you to give your love to another. I'm jealous for your love. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Does that make sense? Okay, so that just shows us then that there is, that essential to the idea of love, and rightly ordered love, is that you love this but not that. As soon as you say, well, I love everything, that word has literally become meaningless. Love is love. So I love the person supporting life, and I love the person taking life. I love the person who gives me my possessions, and I love the person who tries to steal those possessions. It's a nonsensical way of speaking, and I mean that in the technical sense. It is nonsensical. Sense it call it doesn't make any sense and of course you can test this out love is love I love your truck give me the keys see how that goes so essential for us to understand that love and God being love is always an ordered love 
And that always means then there's going to be things that he hates. And if he is wisdom, he's going to hate foolishness. If he is good, he's going to hate wickedness or evil. And thus then we find this statement in verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And we'll continue on in just a minute, but I saw a a hand. Please. So that gives us a a good way of dealing with this, uh, oh, well, you need to love everything. Mm -hmm. But then there's another thing that I hear, and I'm sure we all hear this from some places, the Eastern idea or the pseudo-Eastern idea of, oh, well, that's just dualistic. I'm I'm trying to achieve a higher consciousness where there's neither love nor hatred, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You hear that? Well, and then what do we say to that? I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say again, just that's nonsensical. You can't get higher than God, and God hates. I mean, I, I preached a sermon to this effect, uh, and it, because it's a strange, but if God is love, the scriptures say that God hates. And it's not as easy, even though this might be helpful sometimes for us to say, it's not as simple as this. We say, or we hear it said, He hates the sin but loves the sinner? The only problem with that is it's not biblical. (laughs) The only problem with that is he does, in fact, say he hates the sinner. (laughs) He hates the wicked one. And he doesn't make a distinction. So as a bad tree produces bad fruit, you don't go, well, I hate the fruit, I'm going to leave the tree. What do you think the tree is going to do next season? And this is, you know, this is kind of part of, it's, if you do your own yard work, probably very rare uh, these, this day and age, but if you do your own yard work, if you love your yard, you don't embrace whatever grows in it. If you love your yard, you pluck out the weeds. If God loves creation, then it's an aspect of his love by which he casts out that which does not belong, that which is evil. How could a loving God judge the world? How could a loving God put anyone into hell? That's precisely what love does. Love casts out that which is wicked if, in fact, love loves. So if you love your family, you don't say to the person breaking in, trying to do them harm, hey, come on in, I love you too. Oh, do you love me hurting them? Oh, I love all things. I love you hurting them and not hurting them. I've reached a higher plane. Uh, No, that's foolishness. And anyone who saw that would say, have you lost your mind? You love your family and therefore you protect them. And that's ultimate. You love your family and therefore you lock your doors. And that's precisely what God is going to do. It's where everywhere in his parable he talks about at the end, taking up the weeds, casting them out, and burning them so that the field that he loves is finally as it should be. Or he talks about finally closing the doors with the wicked on the outside. Why? Because he loves those who are, who are on the inside. Now, through his love, he invites everyone to come in to repent of their wickedness, to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be part of the family, But if they stubbornly turn their back on that, then there is a point at which he has to say, well, have it your way. And have it your way precisely because I love those who love me in return. Okay, maybe enough on that. Please. So how can a prideful person 
become humble? And mm. how can uh, foolish have wisdom? Is this uh, strictly spirit, the Holy Spirit work? Yeah, definitely. So um, I think you're, you're reading into the next lines. Let's, let's uh, um, just read those and then I'll, I'll address your, your point. So the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech. Again, don't just think of like foul words, but think of speech that is intended to conceal something within it and it has ulterior motives. Equivocation or crafty speech, that's essentially perverted speech. Pride, arrogance, the way of evil, and perverted speech, I hate. So, wisdom hates these things. So, not only are we called to hate, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, but wisdom herself hates. If God is love, love hates. I know that's hard for Americans to wrap their head around, but we have to. And of course, we are by nature proud, arrogant, walking in the way of evil, perverted in speech, everything we say are deceits and lies. So then how are we extricated from this? Now, within the language and imagery of Proverbs, we're extricated from this by the call of wisdom. So by her word that says, and we just heard it, O simple ones, O fools, she could just as easily say, O proud, O arrogant, O idiots walking in the path of evil, O those who engage in twisted speech, lying after the father of lies, turn to me. I hate your ways, and I hate your ways because they're going to lead you to damnation. But I would have you heed my voice and be saved. Now if they won't, off they go. And we saw that all the way back in chapter 1. Now, this is the second of the three poems about wisdom in this early part. And that's precisely what she says. Remember, it sounds quite harsh in in chapter 1, in the first poem on wisdom. But paraphrasing, she says, I called out to you, and you scorned me. You did not heed. And now the day of calamity has come, the day of judgment has come. And you call out to me, and I do not heed. You see the symmetry? So I would have you be saved, but not to the point where I'm going to pervert good and evil and turn the whole new heavens and new earth into hell, you see. So again, it is by grace, through the word, through wisdom, that we are humbled. And then I would just add this anecdotally, that God makes sure and does that through the word, but also through our experiences, So you've all had, no doubt, the experience where you're trying to inculcate the wisdom and the fear of the Lord to someone, and they will not have it. No matter how winsome you are, no matter how many different ways, they they will not have it. There's a sense in which you have to wait on the Lord because he has to bring about that humility. And usually he does so by doing what he does best, smashing idols. So, I won't hear you because I've got my health. Well, now you don't. I won't hear you because I've got my wealth. Well, now you don't. 
I won't hear you because I've got my family and my life. And I, now you don't. So God is at work. And in fact, in many respects, I think it would be wise for us to see it this way because we're constantly, you know, how could a good God allow bad things to happen? He allows them to happen precisely because he is good and precisely because he has recreated the fallen world into a system by which he may, through all means possible, call sinners to repentance. That's why he's designed it the way he's designed it. It's why we think the world stinks, and that's like lesson number one. <laughs> is Yeah, it stinks, so turn to me, and let's go do something other. Okay, but God has designed this world and allowed all of the futility and fallenness and sin and evil to perpetuate itself, all that we might be driven back to him. So it's not by accident. And at a certain point, I mean, if kind of talking about like maybe any connection with Eastern philosophies, at a certain point, pray as we will, we have to come to terms and just realize God knows best. Thy will be done. And in some instances, that means allowing pain and suffering and sorrow and all of the cursedness of the earth to do its work because that's precisely what's going to make men who would not hear wisdom now hear her and be saved. Okay, please. You talked earlier about love Mm -hmm. and how to respond to that, saying what makes you think that? And that's always helpful Mm. to have that. So we talked about love. We talked about hate. Now my question is on evil. Mm -hmm. Evil's a rough word nowadays because evil masquerades as someone's preference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just the whole thing of good or bad or evil, it's, it's difficult. So what's a type of response just to talk about evil? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, this is generality, and this is, um, so as you're talking to people, you always want to pay attention to your vocation to, and to, to your relationship to that person, what you can say and not say and do and not do with an eye to how can I further this person on their path toward heaven or get them off the path toward hell and turn that, right? So that's the idea. And with those things in mind, then how, you know, this is art, not science. And so you might choose a certain path that somebody else wouldn't choose or whatever. There are times in which we can be winsome and times at which we can be sympathetic. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But as a, so as a generality, though, I think Christianity and the church has caved and given way too much slack and in many respects, is way too sympathetic. And I think part of that is because we've loved the world more than we've loved God. Not recognizing that these two things are polar. So we're afraid to call the thing what God calls it because then the world won't like us. Well, remember what Jesus said to his disciples? The servant isn't greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Which is to say, you're not going to winsome your way out of it. In fact, you're more likely to end up deceiving yourself. So I am an advocate, even if it's sort of shocking to people, well, good, all the better, 
to try to recover the biblical language. Um, you're, you're not uh, living with your girlfriend. You're fornicating openly. It's harsh, isn't it? But that's the biblical language for it. So recovering the biblical way and just being uh, blunt and ready to receive the response. Ready to say, hey, that's an abomination. How dare you? How dare you? Well, who do you think you are? Oh, I'm a sinner. I confess that every single Sunday. I stand up with a bunch of other sinners and say, I am a poor, miserable sinner. But I confess it. Who are you to be so judgmental? Well, let me ask you this. When you go to your doctor, and your doctor says, we've run the tests, and it's come back that you are positive for cancer. Do you shout at your doctor, how dare you judge me? How dare you condemn me? How dare you say such things? No, you don't. Because why? He's given you an accurate diagnosis. That's what I'm giving you when I say that what you think is love isn't love, and what you think is good isn't good. And there is no middle ground between light and darkness. So if you don't like or you're upset with what I'm saying, I kill the messenger if you like, but it's what God's saying, and he's saying it not to condemn you, but to diagnose you. That then knowing you are sick with sin, you might turn and look upon Christ and him crucified, the serpent lifted up in the wilderness, and not be condemned, but have eternal life in him. Right? So it's that way of, I think the way the, Luther, you know, the Lutherans would put it is, um, speak the law in its full sternness and the gospel in its full sweetness. And part of that's just recovering the language that God, speak, that God uses. So not trying to soft pedal and not trying to make it winsome always. Because again, Jesus' message to us is that we're not going to outwinsome him. And he was put to death. And we should expect, likewise, uh, to be hated and despised for speaking the truth. So I don't know if that kind of answers your question, but in a general way, then that w- that's sort of the way I would encourage us to regain and to also try to rug pull um, those who think they know what Christianity is and attack. Now, they reject Christianity, but they try to use a tenant of Christianity to attack you, to show that you're a hypocrite. Rug pull them. Don't let them get away with that. Don't let them think they have a clue what Christianity is about. Christianity is a religion of love? Oh, interesting, is it? What do you make of the ten plagues and God killing all the firstborn of the Egyptians? You think, you think God's a God of love? So I, I think, again, it may put them on the defensive. They don't know Christianity as well as you. They assume they do. They assume they know it better than you. So cut that off at the knees and you're doing them a great service by sort of humbling them in that respect, that they might hopefully, uh, ultimately, be cut to the heart and be prepared, you know, as those who heard Peter preach the Pentecost sermon, what then should we do? 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This gift is for you and for your children. Please. Okay, I'm going to try to word it correctly, and you probably already answered it. So we're talking about the non-believer who confronts me, but what about all the Christian people I know who are very soft on certain issues? And if a person tells us, friends of ours, we know mutual friends, and this person might be homosexual and speaks of knowing God and praying to God, and then my and then your non then your believing friends believe that and believe that the person does have a relationship with God because he tells us that he prays to God, but he's a homosexual and and you know he isn't really godly because he doesn't recognize that he's sinning. How do you answer that group of people? <laughs> yeah, fair fair enough. So where you deal with where you're dealing with. Uh, Let's say someone says, I'm a Christian, and they say, I'm experiencing same-sex attraction. I have for as long as I can remember. I have since puberty. That's what I'm experiencing. Um, I acknowledge it as sin. I confess it as sin. Can I still be a Christian? Can I still be saved? What's the answer? Absolutely. How is that any different from any of us? In that regard, it's repentant sin, and we're all repentant sinners until the day we die. Okay, but it's a different animal, isn't it, when they say this is uh, not a sin. It's the same-sex attraction. It's something I'm proud of. It's who I am, and it's how God made me. Uh, There, again, it's going to differ a little bit in terms of who you are to that person. So I'm not making a just universal statement here. But as a generality, you're dealing with someone who is profoundly lost and is, but is held to a higher standard because they claim the name of Christ. So it is probably even more incumbent upon us to say, you're deceiving yourself. You're in impenitent sin. But my friend and I, who know this person we get irritated at one another because my Christian friend thinks this person is okay with God. How do I deal with that Christian friend? I mean, well, yeah. is there, what do I say to her? So whether or not one is okay with God is um, not, in, in, terms of our, in terms of our general uh, vocation as royal priests, as Christians, you know, who am I to judge the servant of another? So what we should limit ourselves to is if that's what he says or that's what he thinks or she is the case may be, that's grievous error. If you're in that person's church, you should talk to them about their grievous error. If they won't listen to you, you should take one or two others, and if they won't listen to them, you should tell the church, and if they won't listen to the church, they should be treated as tax collectors, those outside. So that's Matthew 18, right? So I think, you know, again, we want to look at this vocationally. Now, as a pastor of a congregation, it's a little different. So, you know, if if something like that's going on in my congregation, you know, in Christ's congregation that he's given me uh, a pastorship over, I have to address that head on. Um, but that doesn't mean that I have to address that in, in congregations I'm completely not in fellowship with and everything else. 
So I don't want to be an ideologue. I want to be in service of people. I want to recognize what my vocation is and what my role is. And then when I have opportunity, I want to speak very clearly, right? So, I mean, in a sense, it's, you want to think of jurisdiction. Well, where is he going to church that he thinks this? And if he's not going to church, well, that's kind of also sign number one, uh, that things are not going well. So what would be a biblical, what would be a biblical basis for this? Um, if you think of 1 Corinthians... Remember the man who is engaged in open sexual immorality? And the Corinthians are all patting themselves on the back saying, look at how the gospel just covers everything. What's the problem? The man's still living with this apparently a stepmother or something and fornicating with her, and this is an open reality in the church. And while they're going, oh, the gospel covers all sins. Isn't this wonderful? Let's all be on the... Let's all bend the knee at the cross and receive the Lord's Supper together. Paul's like, have you lost your mind? The only loving thing in that instance is to confront the man with his sin and no longer eat with such a fellow, which is bare minimum, communion. So you can read Paul himself in his own words. That's a jurisdictional, right? So we don't have to, you know... In a specific sense, we don't have to deal with those specific instances outside of our jurisdiction or purview. If the parties directly involved come to us, we can speak the word of truth. We can say, hey, this is how it should be handled according to the Bible. right? But in terms of taking a personal responsibility or to the point where, you know, just be like, hey, that's what God's word says. Yeah. And probably, probably there, too, would be uh, a, a sort of connection. I mean, usually people who drop off and, and aren't going to church, there's other stuff going on there. So maybe that's what's going on. Maybe there's something else going on. So anyway, just some thoughts. I see a couple other hands, please. Going back to the hating, mm-hmm. I'm kind of stuck at that, that we're supposed to hate other people. I mean... I grew up with that, you hate the sin, not the sinner. Mm. And at what point, and because we're all sinners, and we all do things, at what point are we supposed to hate another person? Mm. So here's the root, and maybe the way to study it in, in fundamental, okay? So um, do you first hate yourself as sinner? That's the question. See, as a as sinner, I don't just hate my thoughts or my words or my deeds, I hate my very self from which it all springs. And in fact, we have that direct instruction from the Lord. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life for my name's sake will gain it. So the proper way of understanding the sort of paradox between love and hate is in the proper sense, if you love yourself, you hate the sinner within. And in a person who is, there's no saint there, there's just a sinner, that's, I mean, that is where you have to speak God's law. And you have to use the biblical language and it has to be a breaking down of that stony heart. Remember in God's word where he says, is not my word a hammer? <laughs> the hammer's not for gently tapping people who just need a little encouragement. It's for shattering stony hearts 
that God might then make living hearts within. So it begins with learning how to hate oneself. And this is probably the biggest problem. I mean, you even see this within, um, within paganism around us. So like, hey, do you ever commit sins? Do you ever commit anything against your conscience or anything that makes you feel bad or anything you'd acknowledge? Yeah, sure, I make mistakes once in a while. See, what's at the root of that is I'm a good person who every so often does a couple of bad things. That is exactly what has to get smashed and obliterated. That is incompatible with Christianity. So God comes with the hammer of his law and he says, no, the problem is much deeper than these quote-unquote mistakes. The problem goes all the way to the essence of you. That's what's so scandalous when he says to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is like, oh, good teacher. Oh, I'm a good guy too. We're all good. Let's talk about good stuff. And Jesus is like, I don't think you, I, I mean, maybe you, maybe you haven't like realized quite how offensive this is. Because he flat out, like if, like if you were to say it in English, he'd be like, Nicodemus, after Nicodemus is like flattering him and hey, yeah, patting him on the back, and, and Jesus just looks him right in the eye and is like, you're going to hell unless you're completely reborn and become someone utterly different. If you're not born from above, you can't have any part in the kingdom of heaven. If you're not born of the water and the spirit, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. You think you see, but you're utterly blind. So that's how stunning it is that, God, that Jesus says, you must be born again. He even says, do not marvel that I say to you must be born again, because Nicodemus' jaw must have been against his chest. You know, But this is exactly the thing. So you've got everybody out there, every pagan out there thinks I'm a generally good person who occasionally makes mistakes. And God would come and say, you're damned unless you're utterly and entirely born again and made new. That's the hammer. Okay, so then we're, um, whoever hates his life for my sake will gain it. So we agree with God's law that it is good, that there is no good that dwells within me, that I am a poor, miserable sinner, that I would do anything in the world to be through with my sin if I could. That's why Paul says that we daily crucify the old Adam within us. So my task every day is to wake up and say, you know, obviously I don't do this particular thing, but to say, Rhody, I hate you, and I'm going to crucify you because I'm no longer you. I am a son of God. And the Catechism teaches it the same way. It just teaches it in terms of baptism so that when you wake up in the morning and make the sign of the cross, remembering that all your sins are forgiven in Christ, that you're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that that is to remind you that this day is to be about drowning who? Yourself. And we're not just playing like, you know, dunk you in the water. Drowning life and death struggle against yourself. So when when you hate the sinner... You're hating them the way you hate yourself. I'm not going to put up with the nonsense. You have to go. (laughs) You have to be entirely different than you are now, or you will not be saved. All right, so there's, um, now what can you see? That that hatred is ultimately bent toward what? Love. That hatred is ultimately bent toward the love of that person being born anew, 
through water and spirit, and becoming an everlasting son of the Father. So that is, again, precisely that way that the, the person who's tending his lawn loves his lawn, and therefore he hates the weeds. We love our neighbors, and therefore we hate them as sinners. We love ourselves, and therefore we hate ourselves as sinners. We crucify, we drown, etc. Does that sort of make sense? That's maybe the paradigm. So it kind of starts with those things that you're familiar with and then branches out to your neighbor. Please. Well, I certainly don't mean this to sound arrogant. We all confess our sins and with good reason. Um, But I would say that as I've gotten older, when you talk about, um, say, a propensity to homosexuality, or to me it's the same as, you know, I really like to steal. It's, it's something I just like to do, but I'm not hurting anyone, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Yeah. Or, um, you know, my husband understands, I'm just going to go outside the marriage because I want to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. What's, there's no difference. One, to me, isn't worse than the other or better than the other. Or, like, I want to lie to you because it clears me. That's still, it's all filthy sin. Yeah. And I mean, I hate it. I tell Bob all the time, I feel like a filthy sinner. I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why the confession is so important to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, con- confession is an act of uh, self-crucifixion. <laughs> why, why don't you want to go to confession before the pastor? <laughs> why does your heart start to beat really fast and you start to go limp in the limbs? How do I know that? Because I've been a penitent and one who confesses before. Uh, Because it's terrifying. And because why? The old Adam is terrified within us. So confessing one's sin is a self-crucifixion. If we love ourselves enough to do that, we urge that upon our neighbors as best we can, that they too um, would, would be reborn into the image of God. So, right, understanding that all sin at its root is disorder. So it's a heart bent against God and his will. And then at that level, it's kind of like, well, you pick this and I pick that, or, you know, nature, nurture, it's this or that. We can have compassion on one another, but we, sp- we have compassion on one another not by saying it's okay, but rather by saying that's sin and it has to be put to death. It has to be confessed against. We have to be absolved and live by faith in that absolution that Christ won for us on the cross. And maybe that's a good place to stop since we're running out of time and we're over time. The Lord be with you.